0: good morning are you doing well this is that odd time between Christmas and New Year where you're trying to figure out what day it is and you feel guilty for wearing sweatpants so much right anybody else trying to figure out what am I doing with my life it's a mess I'm in pajamas all the time no well I am honored to be able to preach this morning Um, I just want to take a moment aren't you just grateful for Pastor Lawrence Pastor Chris and the team didn't he do a great job last week? Yeah, you can, you can give it a Yeah. <laughs> Pastor Lawrence is, Tracy, are taking a couple of weeks, um, and we hope that time is going well. It's going well. I wanted to just uh, take a moment just personally to say thank you to, to you guys. I, um, coming off of probably uh, the hardest year and a half of my life, personally, where uh, I went through things I never thought I would, and in the middle of losing key relationships in my life and and so forth, destiny has become a place that's really kind of loved me back to health, so to speak. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, What you do outside of this moment and and sermons and worship, thats still important. Um, And so just I want to say thank you to you so much. If you have your uh, notes, you want to pull it out. Um, Katie Baffrey pointed something out this morning and I thought I would borrow it from her. But there are a lot of blanks that... uh, as you can tell, my mind probably works different than most. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of blanks. And so what we thought we'd do is we thought I would go ahead and we're going to grade these today. There's 25 of them. They'll be worth four points each. I'm just joking. You can skip, though, the embarrassing grading process by tithing. Uh, so if you tithe, don't worry about it. We won't grade. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> there's a lot of blanks in there, but we're going we're to dive in. If you have your Bibles, would you go to the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes. I'll give you some time because this can be hard to find under pressure. It can hide from you. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 18 and then go to chapter 6, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 5, 18. "'Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting "'is to eat and drink and find enjoyment "'in all the toil with which one toils under the sun "'in the few days of his life that God has given him, "'for this is his lot. "'Everyone also to whom God has given wealth, "'possessions, and power to enjoy them "'and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, "'this is a gift of God. "'For he will not much remember the days of his life "'because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. "'There is an evil that I have seen under the sun.' And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity or meaninglessness, and it is a grievous evil. Let's pray. Father, we stand before your word, and we ask not for the opinions of men, but for a word from you. Would you, um, I just yield myself to you as fully as I know how, and I pray that you would use me this morning to speak to your people. And I'm so convinced that you want to communicate with your people, that if you couldn't speak through me, you'd speak in spite of me. Father, I take a moment, and I pray for our children and the volunteers with them. I pray for our children, you give them a heart to know you walk in your ways, that they would behold your beauty all the days of their life. And I pray for those working with them, you'd give them wisdom, clarity, and bless them for their time. Yes. And here I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, our only hope, amen and amen. In May of 2005, Steve Jobs gave the commencement speech at S- Stanford University. He had clearly already known that he had had a life, uh, a terminal illness at this point when he gave his lectures, when he gave this speech. And ironically, Steve Jobs points out that he calls death life's greatest invention in this little speech. The speech went on to be viewed over 33 million times. Fast forward to 2016. The actor Matthew McConaughey gave a speech at the University of Houston and which went viral and within a year had almost 16 million views, in which he speaks about learning to be yourself and be present and enjoy people. Now what I find interesting is that these men, though they were famous and creative and successful in their field and, and considered by their peers to be exceptional in what they do, they were not kings, they were not philosophers. That what, what, it, what it shows me about these two videos is that though we live in a world filled with information, people are longing for wisdom on how to live a life of meaning. What's interesting to me is they, these two men don't even have close to the same resource, political power, wisdom, wealth, or popularity that King Solomon had, who, the one who believed to be responsible for writing Ecclesiastes when he wrote it. Now, what's interesting is that Ecclesiastes is considered a part of wisdom literature. You have Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. It's believed that Solomon wrote Song of Solomon in his youth. He wrote Proverbs in his middle age, and he wrote Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life. And here's this little book about wisdom, but the, the story, people have a negative view of it. People see Ecclesiastes like a long lament, like a, like a downer, one filled with pain and sorrow, kind of like a, Like a really long Adele song, you know. Uh, Sorry for the uh, for those who don't know Adele. Adele, somebody just made a lot of money with a broken heart, basically. Whoever broke her heart made her millions. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. Some see it as a dark and dim book, one that like a depressed Van Gogh would have written, or a or a nihilist like Friedrich Nietzsche might have written. But what's ironic about uh, ecclesiastes when you look at it it has a quite interesting story the story behind ecclesiastes is here's a man who has the most po- uh, probably the most political power of his day he's a king he has enough political power to see if he can u- if power and using his power would bring meaning to life make his life meaningful and he, not only that then he, he has wealth so much wealth he can buy all the pleasure he wants to see if pleasure will make life meaningful he has all of the things he needs to build uh, art, great architecture, statues, and sacred places to see if he can leave some kind of legacy with his work, if that will make a meaningful life. And he experiments his life with these things. Not only that, he has wisdom. And he evaluates all of this and he writes for us in the book of Ecclesiastes his findings. What's interesting to me is the only ounces of wisdom you can take from Steve Jobs' speech or Matthew McConaughey's lectures was written 3,000 years ago in the book of Ecclesiastes if we'd ever taken the time to read it. Here's a man who set out to find what what would make life meaningful and he tackles three common things that we still try today. He He went after materialism. Meaning, if this is all there is in this physical life, and can I get as much possessions and physical stuff, build buildings and all the rest? Will that make a life meaningful? He went after what's called hedonism, which makes pleasure the highest aim, and he sought to withhold from himself no pleasure known to man, but then said in the end all of this was meaningless and vanity, like a vapor. And then he set out what we might call high humanism. He went after glory and honor. He went after contribution to the world to leave a long legacy. And in the end, he says all of that is meaningless and vanity. Here's a man who had all the resources and he sought all this out and he writes to us that these three left to themselves are absolutely meaningless. And what becomes ironic about the book of Ecclesiastes is in the middle of a book filled with dark overtones about the vanity and meaninglessness of our life. Underneath it, paradoxically, runs the great theme of joy. That under all of the meaninglessness, he says, the thing that really matters is enjoy the things God has given you. So... I don't know if you need to hear a good sermon on joy. Well, I'm not even knowing. I don't know if this is going to be a good sermon. But uh, I don't know if you need to hear a sermon on joy. But I did. So I'm just going to preach it, and you guys get the benefit of it. And I'm not even going to blame this on God. This is just me. We're just going to go after it. Oh, man. If I was to ask you, what is the most grievous of evil that you can think of? I'm sure you could all think of some quite evil things. What's interesting here though, and this is actually part of your first blank, the preacher of Ecclesiastes states that one of the most grievous evil, that's your blank, evil, is to have many blessings but lack the power to enjoy them. That one of the most grievous evil is to have many blessings but lack the power to enjoy them. Think about it for a moment. If you lack the ability to enjoy anything, you can't even enjoy your sin, (laughs) Or your pride. C.S. Lewis said hundred years ago, it takes a little bit of humility to even enjoy pride. That there that, that if you cannot, if you lack the power to enjoy, what good is it that you can enjoy anything that you have, regardless of its moral qualities? So in meditating on this passage, I want to just point out a couple things that I think are important for our lives and for joy. A there, or the next point there, is enjoyment. What we see from this text is enjoyment is a capacity. Enjoyment is a capacity. The word power um, in Hebrew refers to more a, a capacity or an ability. It's not just an emotional response. We think enjoyment is something that just happens to us, like a sneeze, right? Like, ha and we find out we're enjoying something. <laughs> but enjoyment is a, is a capacity. So perhaps then... If, if it is true that enjoy, enjoyment is a capacity, that means then instead of constantly looking outside of ourselves to find joy, perhaps we must start not on the outside but learning to cultivate something on the inside. Amen. That it becomes a futile attempt to find joy always looking externally. In other words, enjoyment is less about accomplishing and more about cultivating be there the next one under your under your notes there is the the capacity to enjoy is also a gift from God so we can ask for it that the capacity for joy it's clear in the text he says yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them if joy is a capacity and this capacity can be a gift from God so ask for it in other words instead of asking for the the new job or the new the whatever blank you fill in the blank, new car, new blank. Instead of asking for something, asking God for something outside of us, what if we started by asking God for the gift of the capacity to enjoy what He's already given us? Start our asking not with something outside of us. That's the issue with desire, isn't it? Desire, though though uh, strong and though a part of our lives and good in, in its in its sense. Uh, of what it is in its nature. Essentially, desire is a good thing. It's a gift from God. But what it does is desire always assumes lack, doesn't it? Desire always pulls you outside of yourself. It assumes that you don't have it and you have to go outside of yourself to get it. If enjoyment is a capacity, then perhaps we need to ask God to increase our capacity to enjoy the people and things that he has given us. So we ask for it. And if enjoyment is a capacity, then... Not only do we ask for it, we must learn to receive it. Which brings me to my next point there. This capacity can also be cultivated. This capacity for enjoyment is, yes, a gift from God, but it also can be cultivated, similar to gratitude. Enjoyment is much like gratitude, and that gratitude can be a gift from God. God can give you a grateful heart, but you can also cultivate gratitude through practice and prayer. If joy is something that you're seeking, and I personally think we're all seeking it even though we may not name it as joy, then perhaps we must start with learning to cultivate within us the capacity for joy with God, asking him for it, instead of looking outside of ourselves for it. Let me put it to you this way. What good is it to get more stuff if you don't even enjoy the stuff you have? Why is it whatever you think you need to get in order to be happy is a lie? If you can't be content and enjoy the things you have, how does getting more of it do any good? Enjoyment is a capacity and we can cultivate it through prayer, through practices. And so I wanted to share with you a little bit about keys to developing this capacity. That would be your next point. Keys to developing this capacity of enjoyment. Enjoyment there, your first one is... um, uh, enjoyment is seeing the good and what God has given us. The Hebrew word for enjoy in this passage in Ecclesiastes is a combination of two words, meaning to see or perceive and good, uh, uh, things that are beneficial or, or um, pleasant or aesthetically pleasing, you may say. To see the good. In other words, to have joy or enjoyment is essentially learning to see the good things that God has given you. Enjoyment has to do with seeing. Have you ever noticed how you're, when you maybe go to look for a certain car, you never notice the car, but once you decide you want to, maybe you're considering this car, you start seeing that car everywhere, right? That that because what, part of the way your brain works is when you become aware, it also can then direct your sight to what you notice. Which brings me to my next point. Seeing is, implies intentionality. If you're going to see the good in your life, you actually have to intend to look for the good in your life. We live in a culture that is bombarded with bad news. We thrive on it. We, 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 um, we become an, an, an anxiously addicted culture. We need anxiety almost to fuel us to do anything. And we li- we constantly bombarded with bad news. If we're going to have joy, we have to be a people that learn to see past, of that, past that and see the good in what God has given us in front of us. And it implies that we have to be intentional at seeing. The second thing there about seeing the good is we must learn to see the invisible. A good is not a visible thing. And and our theme for our revelation for next year is seeing the invisible and doing the impossible. And if you're going to enjoy your life, you're going to have to learn to see the good, which means you have to see the invisible. This means we have to learn how to see in the same way, we have to learn to see what God saw in creation when he said it was good. We have to learn to see how the wise men saw when they came to the baby uh, Jesus. Imagine that for a moment. These wise men traveled and approximately it took them about two years before the time the star appeared to the time they found Jesus. Two years of traveling. And it's not like they jumped on a train or airplane. You're talking about camels across the desert two years, to get to a room in which there is not something that happens every day. A baby was born. The only thing that makes this radically different is they saw the invisible. They saw in a baby, not just a baby, but the very hope of all of Israel and the world. What made the wise men journey worth it and full of exceedingly great joy, as Matthew 2 tells us, they could see the baby was not just another baby. They could see the invisible. We must learn to see the invisible. Three there, and one that often goes ignored, though. Sorrow can help you see. Sorrow can help you see the good. Ecclesiastes 7, 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, The heart of fools is in the house of mirth or laughter. There is something about sorrow that can help us see. And I just want to pause and take a moment here to to work this out just a little bit. One of the things that sorrow does is sorrow reminds us, you and I do not deserve for life to work out for us at all. And the fact that life often works out for us ought to be a place of gratitude that it even does. I reminded G.K. Chesterton said, you know, 125 years ago, he said, we are thankful for gifts in our stockings at Christmas time. Perhaps we should learn to be thankful to God for putting legs in our stockings each day. The fact that one of the things that sorrow and pain and suffering remind us lost is that life, I don't deserve for life to work out well for me. God does not owe me that. God is never in your debt. God never owes you anything and therefore the fact that life most of the time does work out good for us ought to be a place of rejoicing and gratitude. Sorrow helps us learn to receive our life as a gift. We did not choose to exist. I did not choose to be here. And the very fact that I did not choose to be here but get to be here is I am grateful for that regardless of the sorrow that might come. As an example of this, just imagine for a moment Take imagining never seeing your children or a loved one again. Just pause and reflect on the fact. Just imagine you're in a situation where you'll never see your loved one again. And what you'll realize is just the suffering or the sorrow that comes from imagining that actually helps you learn to enjoy them better. Sorrow has a way of recalibrating my eyes to see that which is eternal. We don't like it, I don't like it. I'm not saying that's the main reason why we go through suffering. That's just saying this is a way God might use suffering for our good. This is why often those who have lost a child, those who have lost a spouse, those who have went through a divorce, those who have experienced miscarriage, often if they can stay away from the pitfalls of bitterness and pessimism, often become people who can delight and enjoy their simple lives that sorrow can, listen, sorrow is not necessary in order to see the good. Sorrow is not necessary in order to enjoy your life. I'm just saying that sorrow does help us see if we learn to engage with God there. One of the great secrets of Ecclesiastes is in that contemplating death, which is an uncomfortable thought for us all, we actually learn how to fully live. A culture that will not think about death is a culture that will not live. Think about the way we, we celebrate death in video games, but we hide it from our real lives. We, send, we used to be a time when people came home to die. Now we send them to a place we call home to die. There used to be a day where if you wanted chicken, you went outside and like killed the chicken. There, there, there's, I'm not saying we all should do that. I'm just saying what, when death is a part of our lives, it helps us actually learn how to live. When we try to remove it from our lives, we're living in denial about life. And this is part of what Solomon's wisdom was in Ecclesiastes. He said, I built all of these great things, but it's all vanity because it's going to be handed off to somebody else and they're probably going to ruin it. <laughs> he just sounds like an old, grumpy old man, doesn't he? Right? I gathered all the wealth and got all the possession. It was meaningless because in the end, it, all, it just wore out. Isn't that the weird thing about trying to satisfy desire? It's never really satisfied. It's just postponed. So I tried it all and it was meaningless. So there's a great paradox in both Ecclesiastes and in life, and the paradox is that if you want to be a champion for laughter, you have to be a champion for lamenting. Lamenting is not the same thing as pain and grief. Lamenting is what you do with your pain, and it's what you do with your grief. Lamenting in the Bible is a practice of processing your pain and loss in the presence of God. It's allowing God to step into your pain with you, and the mysterious takes place where God begins to work that for your good, and in ways we don't even understand. But if we want to be a people of great joy, great laughter, we must learn to be a people of lamenting. And that, my friends, reminds me of one of the, another quote from G.K. Chester. I've, re- I've been reading him a lot, simply due to the fact he makes me thankful. Grass is green and the sky's blue. But he once said. It is a sane man who has laughter in his mouth and sorrow in his heart. It's the insane man who tries to remove one or the other. And this is what we're learning about our lives and what I've learned about Christianity. That sorrow uh, and joy are both realities of a life in a fallen world. And the wisdom of Christianity is it doesn't try to deny the other. It can live in a radical middle of hanging on to both of them. It it hangs on to red and it hangs on to white while refusing and hating pink. And when it's time for sorrow, as Ecclesiastes says, it's time for mourning, then we mourn. But there's a time for celebration and we celebrate. That we don't have to live either pessimistic or, or total optimism and live in denial of all the bad things that can happen. We can hang on to both. That the wisdom of Christianity is that Jesus is Lord of all. Including the sorrowful moments and including the joyful ones. So we do not have to live in denial of our reality. If you have to live in denial of your pain in order to have joy, your joy is superficial, it's plastic, it's not real. This idea that the truly spiritual ones among us are those who have some magical powers that allow them to avoid pain is false. That deep Christian spirituality says that we can be extremely joyful and we can embrace sorrowfulness and suffering. That somehow, because of the world we're in, we have to live in both. Jesus knew when to be joyful, and like in Matthew 26, verses 37 and 38, he knew when to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He can do both. So if you're going to be a people of joy, if we're going to learn to enjoy the life that we have, we have to learn to lament. One of God's great redeeming graces is that in sorrow, he can use it to teach us how to enjoy the things that we do have. The next thing there in your notes, in order to see, we must be present. In order to see in a way that brings ne- that's necessary for joy, we must learn to be present in the moment where we are. Great passage in Exodus where God tells Moses, I want you to go up on top of the mountain and be there with me. <laughs> Anybody else? I don't want you to go to the mountain and be somewhere else in your head. When you get up there, be with me. Every wife in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> All the guys are like, huh, that did not make any sense. How is he there and not there? Just joking with you guys. There are two things, though, that are common to most of us that will rob us from being present. Two things that will rob you from being present, which therefore robs you of not being able to see the good and can rob you of joy. One is Guilt. Guilt will keep you looking at the past. Guilt has this way of drawing us uh, constantly to be thinking and evaluating ourselves. How are we doing and who are we with? Guilt has this way of making us, in a sense, self-centered because we, we almost have to go outside of ourselves and watch ourselves to evaluate ourselves on how we're doing so that we don't do anything bad. The problem with that is you can't, therefore, at the same time be in yourself, being present with the people who you're with. And you can't therefore enjoy those moments because you're outside of yourself trying to evaluate yourself. Guilt can rob us from being present. What's interesting about psychology, if you've ever uh, studied it, guilt emerges in someone's life around in between the ages of three to five years old. And what they found is guilt is oftentimes the alternative to playfulness in a child. When you see a child stop playing, you often will find that guilt is increased. The other thing that it does, what guilt does in children, is it begins to stifle their initiative, where they no longer want to take initiative out of fear of doing something wrong. Guilt will rob us of being present, of taking initiatives, of learning to see, of being intentional and enjoying the moments that we're in. But another thing that will rob us from being present is anxiety. Anxiety keeps us looking at the future. Anxiety keeps us looking at the future. Anxiety and worry keeps us anticipating what may go wrong, which is always in the future, right? Listen, there, there's a great study that's recently done that showed that um, after about seven to nine minutes of worrying about something, you really have no new thoughts. You just begin the spiral of worry in which you repeat certain thoughts or what ends up happening, you're no longer looking for solutions. All you're doing is playing out all the consequences that may happen. In other words, anxiety, what you thought anxiety was to do, which was to help you predict the future and bring solutions, actually helps prevent you from thinking clearly about solutions. And the study showed one of the best things you can do after about seven to nine minutes of worrying about something is to go do something else that will get your mind out of the spiral of worry and get your hands at work where original ideas come best to you while you're doing something completely different. That the very thing anxiety set out to do actually hinders us from doing it Rest is the place of original ideas. But anxiety can rob us because we're always trying to think about the future, navigate it, predict outcomes. And that's the great paradox of anxiety is that what actually, it actually inhibits us to finding the solutions that we are hoping anxiety would help us solve. But I don't just want to tell you about this. I'd like to give you a remedy too there. The remedy for this or these two things is trusting Jesus. But trusting Jesus, number one, Trusting Jesus as Savior, for He alone saves us from our guilt and sin. Can I just say something to you? When you have somebody who has a pervaded sense of guilt, you cannot out, you can't reason them out of it, because they weren't reasoned into it. It was an emotional experience, and therefore, reason. Only thing when you reason with somebody who's guilt-ridden, all you do is increase their guilt, because they go, "Why can't I not just reason myself out of this like you are?" What's wrong with me that I can't think the way you think about this? You see what I'm saying? So what ends up happening is that the only thing that can, listen, you cannot outperform inward shame. Listen, there is not enough accolades or accomplishments to silence the criticism inside, the inner criticism that is the source of your guilt. It has to be loved out. And what I'm trying to tell you is the only place, the only power that is strong enough to defeat sin, shame, and guilt is the unconditional love made available to us in Jesus Christ as our Savior. When somebody's pervaded with guilt, I don't try to reason them out of it. I try to let them see God's love for them in spite of all what they think they've done wrong. That here is one who, while you were his enemy, he died for you. Not while you were just indifferent, not just while you didn't really think much about him, while you were dead set against him, he died for you. That is unconditional love, and it frightens us, doesn't it? It frightens us a bit because all of a sudden I have no control over this. It can scare us a bit. But the remedy to our guilt is trusting the love made available to us in Jesus. Jesus is not waiting for you to get your act together. He, 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 uh, he loves you. His love for you is, again, that only remedy. But his love is not just this fragile sentimentality. His love is fierce and passionate, a pursuit of your highest good. And this is what you must know. His love is never based on your performance. It's always an extension and an expression of his character. He loves you not because of what you've done or your awesomeness he loves you because he is love that frees me you see listen i I just want to pause and say this i used to think and this uh, i'm just going to confess the darkness of my own slimy soul and you know i'd appreciate if you guys email me all the bad stuff you've done i can use your next your stories next time but i used to remember thinking when somebody said you know uh, i'm saved i used to think yeah you know god bought me but he got a pretty good deal you know i mean like hey you know yeah i've done some things wrong but just wait I'm going to show God what an awesome bargain he got in buying me. The problem with that, you see, is it actually begins to take the power out of the love. So one of the great hopes is not to reason ourselves out of our guilt, but to go, yes, I I don't deserve any of this, but God. But God who is rich in love for me but God is who he is, but God said that he loved me. In other words, part of what we must do is we must learn to allow what God has said about us become the most determinative voice in our minds and not the voice of guilt. But the only way that you do that is to have a community of people around you who will speak about the love of God to you. That's the only way, psychologically, you internalize the voice of love and grace. The next thing... I need to do the remedy is uh, trusting Jesus as Savior, but the remedy to anxiety is trusting Jesus as Lord. That is that Jesus is sovereign over your future. Jesus being Lord of all means he's Lord of your future your past, your present, and your future, and he can orchestrate all things for your good. Therefore, worrying about tomorrow when you have no power over it at all is pointless. That's why Jesus would tell us in Luke 12, can you even grow? If you're worried about being short, can you add a stature to your height by worrying? No, in other words, your worry is powerless. So trust me, Jesus would say that he alone has the power over our future. What's interesting to me is all the ways we try to set out to solve our anxiety only in the end fuels more anxiety. We wanna find a solution to the future so we think if I just get enough assets in the bank, if I get a large enough 401k, if I get enough money saved up, surely I'll be safe. Then you gotta worry about losing your assets. Then you gotta worry about protecting your assets. If I could just get that new job, things would be better. You get the new job, then you gotta worry about keeping the new job. If I just got this kind of relationship, then you get that kind of relationship, and you think, now i got to protect the relationship. All of the, listen, any other way you attempt to solve your anxiety outside of trusting in the Lordship of Jesus Christ will only prove to increase your anxiety in the end. So trusting Jesus as Lord gets us off the cycle of futility that leads to exhaustion of trying to manage all the outcomes in our life but to be able to say that whatever may come tomorrow, God will only use it to prove his steadfast and good care of me. Therefore, trusting him in all things can be my settled character. You see, the love, Jesus' love for us and his lordship means that we can be settled and trust in him for our future and give up all the desperate attempts of managing the outcomes. Both of these things, the love of Jesus as our Savior and the good care of Jesus as our Lord can produce a rest in our soul that will allow us to be present and see the good in front of us which will allow us to enjoy the things God has given us. Let me put it to you this way. We must trust the essence of the gospel in order to have the effects of the gospel. Or maybe this way. We have to trust that we must trust the Jesus of the gospel if we're going to have the joy of the gospel. The third thing. Uh, is there a helpful practice in being present? I wanted to give you a practical thing you can do in learning to be present. Because if you can't be present, you can't see the good in front of you, and therefore you can't have joy. So one of the practices of being present is being still and paying attention to your senses. I know this sounds, for some people may roll their eyes, but Thomas Aquinas told us in the 11th, or 12th century and, and became a practice that, that and and pastors have used for years. Imagine for a moment. Take a time during this week. This is actually part of your GP2RL, God's Presence to Real Life. Take a moment and just be still. Close your eyes and be silent and pay attention to your senses. Pay attention to the wind blowing over your arm or the coolness of your skin or the sound of birds chirping or the sound of children laughing. What it does is when you begin to pay attention to your senses, it allows you to center yourself and be present. And then what you do, invite Jesus, God's presence, into that moment and you ask him to be present with you. One of the things that draws us back to being present is learning to just pause for a moment and pay attention to our senses. At the end of the day, the present moment is all that is real. You don't get, listen, Paul said today is the day of salvation. You don't ever get saved tomorrow. You get saved now. The only place of God's grace and power is the present moment. Yes, God will be gracious to you tomorrow. Yes, God's power will be present to you tomorrow. But it'll be there tomorrow, but when you're there, it'll be present to you. And if you don't learn to be present now, you won't be present tomorrow when you're hoping for his grace. So you have to learn to be present because it's in this moment and this moment alone can I encounter and meet God. Never tomorrow. My past has happened. I can't change it. My future, I actually can't adjust all of the outcomes. The only moment I have in which I can meet Jesus, and be formed by him. The only place of grace and love and power is this moment, for this is real. This is real. So we have to learn to be present if we're going to have joy. This time of year, people are always planning the next year and all the things they're going to do, which is good. Wisdom dictates we should have a plan. But look, I just want to say, maybe you should plan on cultivating your capacity to enjoy the good gifts God's given you. Let me just end with this. The last thing I'd like to point out from this text in Ecclesiastes is this. Enjoyment is a key to a meaningful life. Joy, enjoyment is a key to a meaningful life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes goes on about everything being vain, vanity, vanity. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. And you would think he would juxtapose meaninglessness with significance or something meaningful, but he doesn't. He juxtaposes meaninglessness with joy. C.S. Lewis once said, what if everything that is good about heaven or a new heaven and new earth or all the things we are meant to enjoy in this life now. Learning to enjoy the good gifts is actually a pathway to a meaningful life. We think if I can get more accomplishments, if I can just get my certain desires satisfied, but what the great wisdom of Ecclesiastes is, look, eat, drink, enjoy the work. Not enjoy the money the work gives you, learn to enjoy the work itself as having a creative contribution to other people. Learn to enjoy the good things in your life as a way of finding that your life is meaningful. We, We search in desperate attempts to find something about life that is meaningful, but we often look in the future or things that we can accomplish, and the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is learning to enjoy the things that God has given you is the first step to having a meaningful life. What good would it do to accomplish a bunch of significant things, but find out in the end that you never enjoyed any of it? And so your delight in those things was never present in your life. Receiving your life and what you have as a gift will give rise to enjoyment, which actually begins to melt away skepticism, entitlement, despair. Well, I just need to end. I was going to move to talking about desire for a moment, but that gets a little complex. Let's just pause for a moment. Let me conclude with this. Let me tell you a story. There's a great novel called Man Alive. And in it, there's a man named Mr. Smith. He's the main character of the story. Mr. Smith um, is almost Mary Poppins-like. He's magical and just brings goodness everywhere he goes, it seems like. But one of the main cruxes, moment of the book is when Mr. Smith is brought to a high court and put before judge and jury and put on trial for some major crimes, burglary, um, um, desertion of his spouse, leaving his spouse, polygamy. And he's put on trial and it goes through this long episode of all of these accusations and eyewitnesses and all of this evidence of paperwork and all of these things. And the big climax of the book comes when Mr. Smith has a moment to give his testimony. And in a both comedic way and to the the shock of the judge and jury and even the reader of the book, you find out something very profound. Mr. Smith was in fact a burglar, but he burglarized his own home. For he said, "The the wine and cheese I owned never tasted so good until I ate it, snuck in, and drank it, snuck in through the window as the pirate did when he stole it. But it was his own wine and his own cheese. He deserted his spouse and remarried another woman, but it ended up being the same woman just by a different alias because he said, I never wanted to lose the magic of our courtship. I never wanted to not for a moment love my wife. And the great story about men alive is that sometimes you have to travel all the way around the world back home to enjoy it again. But we can learn from that if we can by eyes of faith see the good things God has given us and delight in God's good care of us. Look, in a world starving for meaning, in a world filled with anxiety brought on by materialism, in a world filled with information but just starving for wisdom, I know of no greater way that we as the people of God can bear witness to God's goodness and the gospel than to be people who thoroughly and intensely enjoy the ordinary things God's given us. To just delight in them, to enjoy them, to enjoy our children, to enjoy the food at the table, to enjoy the gifts that we're given, to enjoy the relationships in our life a deep not that not that listen not that fragile superficial lightheartedness and aloofness that passes as joy but that deep enjoyment of what god has given us i can think of no better way we can bear witness to a world gone mad with materialism when they've made uh, they made limitless desire of virtue and yet there's this strange herd of people among them who seem deeply delightful and satisfied with what god has given them That, my friends, would bear witness to a world starving for something that's truthful. And Ecclesiastes has told us all along about it 3,000 years ago. Would you stand with me? I want to end with just one more little story. Some years ago, I was in a pizza hut. Tells you how long ago. (laughs) The last time you ate a pizza hut. Anyway, sorry. I was in a pizza hut meeting with someone and, and walked a little league, junior high, junior varsity, maybe baseball team. And um the entire it, it was just a wreck they were cat they were ungrateful they're complaining about everything it was brutal it was a it was so bad I was ready to leave just to get away from the situation and I went up to check out and I was checking out and the person in front of me was checking out and in front of me was a an, an older I don't I'm not being mean I just want you to see the story an older just chubby little grandma with just this little chubby cheek kid grandson, and they turn to leave, and as they get close to it, he sees the gumball machine, and he turns to Grandma and says, Grandma, can I have a gumball? And Grandma opens up first and just digs through it. I mean, basically loses her head in it, that big. Finds some change, puts it in there, turns it out, pops. I mean, just a huge gumball. She takes that, turns it, and grabs the cheek, crams that gumball in his mouth. I'm to it. And he just said, thank you, Grandma. And I wanted to go yank every one of those little league baseball players over And just say, would you look at that? There comes a moment in our lives where we have to look up at heaven with our chubby cheeks filled with all the good things God's given us, and just say, thank you, Daddy. I don't deserve any of it. And then enjoy the gumball while you got it. Look, this is not a sermon to make you feel guilty for not being grateful. This is a sermon to try to help you say, guilt's not going to help you be grateful. This is trying to say that there is an art to enjoyment and it's learning to see the good things God's put in front of us. There's a bunch of things that may get in the way of our seeing, but we must allow the Holy Spirit to come behind us and with eyes of faith, take our eyes and say, son, would you see that goodness? Would you see that goodness? We don't have to live in denial of the pain, but we can look through it and see God's good care of us. So maybe we're gonna take a moment in worship and maybe you need, to, you need to come and ask Jesus to step into your guilt. Maybe it's bombarded you. Maybe you need to ask Jesus to come and help you in the middle of your anxiety. Maybe you need to repent of trying to play Lord in your own life and manage the outcomes, but trust Him back to Him. Maybe you need to ask the Lord today for the capacity to enjoy the good things He's given you. I pray we would be a people marked by joy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come. We come with hearts open to you. And Holy Spirit, we just say, unless you come and move, this was all in vain. There's no logic that can change us. There's no, unless you fill the words with your power, there's nothing significant that happens. So I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Move upon our hearts and minds and draw us to yourself. And I ask you, Lord, may we be a people marked by joy. And we thank you for this. May we never have joy without having the essence of the gospel. May we trust deeply in your good care and in your saving love for us. But may we overflow with joy unending and full of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.